The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Sound check? How's that? Loud enough? Too loud? It's okay? Okay. Well, you can imagine how happy I am to be here. Um, I'm one of your far-flung Sangha members. And having lived overseas for 30-some years, it's really a pleasure to be here. I just moved back to the Bay Area this month. So it's a lot of, <laughs> lot of joy to be here. And welcome, and thank you very much for coming. What I'd like to talk about tonight is the idea of living a life of refuge. So how might we find safety in the midst of our experience just as it is? And how might we become a refuge for others? So as you know, uh, here at IMC, our main practice is the practice of mindfulness. And uh, there are sort of two um, kind of fundamental ways we can approach mindfulness practice. One is sort of like the, the Nike slogan, just do it. And, and this is a very valuable practice where we just, we just decide we're going to do it. And we may do mental noting. We may try to, to be mindful at various times during the day as, as much as we possibly can. But one of the, the drawbacks of the, of the just do it approach is that sometimes we may be forcing our mindfulness or we may be pushing aside or not engaging with that which is making it difficult for us to be mindful. So another way of approaching mindfulness practice is to try to work on creating some of the conditions that would be conducive to practicing mindfulness so that when we you know, come to our meditation or we uh, try to practice during our lives, we, we've kind of laid some, some groundwork that uh, helps us to, to enter into our mindfulness better. You may be familiar with a very famous um, quotation from Ajahn Chah, who said that freedom comes directly from letting go. If you let go a little bit, you'll have a little bit of freedom. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of freedom. And if you let go completely, your heart will be completely free. So this is, um, this is a pretty big challenge for us. How, how do we get to the letting go? And one of the idea that I'd like to share with you tonight is that uh, I believe that it takes both heart and mind together to really help us uh, find the, the confidence and the, and the courage to let go. Um, one of the things that we do as we practice mindfulness, one of the, one of the fruits of mindfulness, is the development of insight. And this is a very uh, key thing for on the, on the path to freedom. And it's, 
It's not an accident that this place is called Insight Meditation Center. And as we practice mindfulness, and we can do it more and more deeply, one of the key insights that arises is the insight into impermanence. And we start to see in our, in our direct experience that things are not as substantial as they seem. They arise, they, they, they're there for a while, and they, and they pass away. So um, as we practice, our, our insight into impermanence gets more and more refined, and we, we see it on a, on a finer and finer scale. One of the, the really um, important questions that is good to ask as we practice mindfulness is, what is it that keeps us from seeing clearly? So when we're clinging to things that we know uh, are not going to last, we could say that in some way we're not facing the truth of reality. So, as you heard, I, I trained as an ecologist, and so evolution is a very important force in how things have come to be the way they are today for our whole planet, for every individual being in the planet, including each one of us. And one of the sort of unfortunate uh, consequences of natural selection and evolution, at least for us as, as Buddhist practitioners, is that there's, you know, there's kind of a, a lot of focus on looking after number one. You know, we're basically, by natural selection, we're, we're programmed to pass on our genes. And, and you know, we're here tonight because our parents did pass on their genes and their ancestors passed on their genes. And so there's, a, there's this whole kind of current of... Uh, uh, that's, that's moving within us, that's, that's driving us to, to take this self very seriously and um, make sure that it gets replicated. And one of the things that natural selection does is that it kind of uh, tricks us into thinking that things are different than the way they really are. Um, the Greek tragedian Sophocles wrote... To one who is afraid, everything rustles. So last week, uh, Gil talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. And the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of mind. So being aware of our state of mind and how our state of mind actually colors our experience. So if, for example, we're anxious... You know, we may feel kind of insecure, and, and the world that we see out there uh, seems like something maybe we can't count on, or it's, it may be kind of threatening. We're, we're unsure of it. Um, if, on the other hand, our mind state is one of hostility or aversion, then the very same experience might be perceived as being irritable or unpleasant. Or... Uh, if our mind is spacious and calm, the world that we perceive, we might perceive it as being um, very nurturing and, and, and very open. 
So what this means is that um, our feelings are not a reliable guide to reality. We're, we're coloring reality with, with our states of mind. And um, natural selection has kind of built a sort of delusion into the system. You know, natural selection wants us to eat, have sex, increase our social status, so we'll have more sexual partners. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of promising us that that's going to make us happy. So we're, we're kind of driven for the happiness of, of these things that, you know, we know intellectually are not going to last. And so the way we experience things is often dictated by our desires. And as you may have experienced, the Buddhist teaching goes against this stream of our instincts. So one thing I I want to uh, suggest is that I think it's really important to be very respectful of the task in front of us as Buddhist practitioners. It's a daunting task. We, each one of us has a lifetime of conditioning to undo. So the Buddha taught us about uh, the eight worldly winds, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And these are what constrict us, what takes our joy away, and also what takes away our clarity of vision. So we're all being buffeted around by these eight worldly winds all the time. You know, we, we're very happy when we're on the gain side, and then, you know, we lose a loved one and we're, we're devastated. We have pleasure, and that's very pleasant, and then pain comes along, and, you know, we don't want it. Praise. We love being praised. It really, it really feels good. And then somebody comes along and, and trashes us, you know, and we don't like that at all. And then maybe someday we start to get a little bit famous, so then, then we're really, you know, feeling pretty good. But inevitably, somebody's going to think that we're not actually that great as, you know, we think we are. And there's going to be some, you know, some disrepute that comes along. And, boy, we don't like, we don't like that disrepute at all. So, you know, here we are constantly being shoved around by these eight worldly winds. And so one of the things that we need to do is to, to train ourselves in, in letting go of all this. Let's take the example of anxiety. Let's say we have some really, really kind of churning deep anxiety, and it's exceedingly unpleasant. And what do we do with it? Well, mostly, we focus on the anxiety, and we let it control our thoughts, and we do anything we could to get rid of it. This is what natural selection would have us do. It would have us, like, focus on, okay, how do I, how do I change this situation? But the Buddha's teaching is very radical in this respect. It's, it's, not, it's not to focus on what we're anxious about. It's like Gil said last week, instead of looking outside at what's 
going wrong for us. We take that and we turn it right back 180 degrees and it becomes a mirror. And we look at our own subjective experience. Oh, how does this anxiety feel in the body? What's that, what's that feeling in my stomach or the tightness in my chest or the, you know, in, my, in my jaw or my forehead? And then what does it feel like in the mind and in the heart? And this, this practice of, of looking instead at our subjective experience is what starts loosening the, the, the chains that we have that are they're chaining us to uh, just being hooked on trying to solve that problem out there. So it's really um, this, this turning things around and looking at it subjectively and focusing on our inner world is a doorway to freedom that we can actually be with our experience, even if it's a difficult experience, without feeling the compulsion to act on it. And this is, this is really a big deal in, in situations like addiction, that we can actually feel that, 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 that terrible uh, yearning to you know, go gambling or you know, have a drink or whatever it is we're addicted to, and to be able to stay with that and realize that maybe I don't have to do that. Maybe there's another, another way. So one of the things I wanted to share with you tonight is that um, for the last couple of years I've been doing a lot of uh, equanimity meditation. I actually really like practicing all uh, four of the, the Brahma Viharas. These, for those of you who may not be familiar, they're the Buddha's uh, teachings on love. And they're uh, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And equanimity, uh, according to the Buddha, is also a form of love. And what equanimity means is, when we do it as a meditation practice, it means embracing things just the way they are. So with your permission, I'd like to share with you my own uh, phrases that I use when I do this. And uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with um, this type of meditation, the way it works is that you repeat the phrases very slowly and in a really heartfelt way. And you visualize the person that you're offering them to. Maybe it's yourself, maybe it's someone else. And you have a little pause in between the phrases so that you, you let the feeling of that phrase kind of sink in and blossom and, and become kind of real for you. And this really makes it a very, very powerful and, and transformative meditation. So if I'm in a really tough spot, I say, things are as they have come to be. May I live with an open heart. May whatever clouds my heart be dissolved. And may I see the world with quiet eyes. So starting out by saying 
that things are the way they have come to be kind of gives the, the context for whatever this, this challenging experience is, that it's not just one thing. There are all kinds of myriad of causes and conditions that have come together to create this situation. And so it's an invitation just, just to recognize this is what's happening now. And in that recognition, to, to open the heart to, as much as possible, accept. And then wishing to have an open heart. And then if it, things are really too difficult to have an open heart, then may whatever clouds the heart be dissolved. And in the end, one day, to be able to really see the world with quiet eyes. So I want to get back to, it's kind of a long introduction to what I want to get back to about um, what it means to take refuge and where is it that we can really find safety. Um, last May, Gil did a refuge ceremony. I'm wondering how many of you actually participated in that ceremony. Oh, wonderful, thank you. So you've been, you've been working with these ideas. And one of the beautiful things about taking refuge is that each person uh, does it in their own way. Each person does it in a way that resonates uh, for you. So I'd like to share with you how, how I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, so first of all, taking refuge in the Buddha is taking refuge in the historical Buddha, that person who awakened and then taught and shared his awakening and opened the doors to freedom for countless beings. But for me, even more importantly, when I take refuge in the Buddha, I'm taking refuge in my own capacity for awakening. And for a long time, this was kind of a, a leap of faith for me. You know, is there really, is this, you know, is there really a capacity for awakening in me? And it's a very beautiful thing to begin to trust. So um, now I'll tell you a story. It's about my very first encounter with Buddhist meditation. So I was um, 21 years old. It was 1968. Um, I had read a book uh, on Zen, which impressed me greatly. It was Philip Kaplow's The Three Pillars of Zen. And it was actually talked about Zen practice, how you, how you sit and so forth. And I thought, boy, this is great. Uh, if Zen is happening anywhere in this country, it's got to be San Francisco. So I drove all the way from Boston to San Francisco for the summer, looked up Zen in the phone book, Zen Center. <laughs> and... Um, I called up, and this little voice says, Mushy, mushy. And that was, <laughs> there was this little Japanese lady, and I said, Oh, uh, would it be possible to practice sasen? She says, Oh, yes. And I said, Oh, thank you. Uh, what time? She says, Five o'clock. I said, Oh, five o'clock in the evening? No, five o'clock morning. <laughs> so I had never been up at five o'clock in the morning in my life, but I was going to do it. Anyway, I was so nervous about being late that I got there really, really, really early. I was the first person there. And so, 
you know, I just went and sat down and I did it like they, they said in this, this book, The Three Pillars of Zen. But what I didn't know was that was a Rinzai book and this was a Soto Zen temple. So I, just, I sat there facing away from the wall with my eyes closed and I didn't know enough to have my knees down on the ground so I had my knees up in the air. And since my eyes were closed, as everybody else came in, you know, they must have been going like, oh gosh, <laughs> you know, what is this one? You know, and they were all sat facing the wall and with their eyes slightly open. And then about 10 minutes into the sitting, um, this young Japanese priest comes along. It was Kobanchino. And without a hint of disapproval, he very gently just turns me around toward the wall. And so at that point, I opened my eyes because somebody was turning me around, and I realized that everybody else was <laughs> sitting differently. You know, you know, and seeing this kind of formal tradition thing, you know, the, the form is very important anyway. So he you know, put my knees down, straighten my back a little bit. And I was mortified. Anyway, so um, then at the end of the sitting, uh, everybody filed out through a little door, and at the door was the Zen master, and he bowed to each person individually. And so there I was, having done everything wrong, and this Zen master was bowing to me, and I bowed back. So it was, a, it was a beautiful lesson on my very first day of sitting of total acceptance. There was absolutely no judgment whatsoever. And then a, a few days later, Suzuki Roshi uh, gave a talk, and I went to listen to this talk, and I was completely blown away. I knew that I was in the presence of somebody who was deeply enlightened, and I vowed then and there to become his disciple, and six months later I was at Tassajara. So looking back on this today, what I find uh, interesting is, you know, okay, uh, I'll give you a little background. I was, so I was 21. I did have a traumatic childhood. I had quite a lot of psychological problems, and I, you know, I was a very confused, um, very struggling young person. And so what I find remarkable is, how did this very confused um, you know, person with no self-confidence and just you know, didn't know anything, how did I know that this man was enlightened? How did I know that what he was saying was the deepest truth? It was that something inside of me resonated. And it's kind of a miracle, if you think about it. Like, I had had no training whatsoever, and somehow I knew that this this was the truth. And I think many of you, maybe even most of you, have had exactly the same experience. You've heard a Dharma teacher, and something inside you said, yes. And you didn't really know where that came from. So um, what I'm suggesting here is that we do have this innate wisdom, and it may be covered up with a lot of junk, you know, a lot of neurosis. But it's in there. And... It's able to blossom. 
So um, here's another story. This is a story about a great big huge Buddha in Thailand. It was built in the 13th or 14th century in northern central Thailand. Then in the 15th century, it was taken down to the south of Thailand. Um, then in the 17th century, these Burmese invaders came in and they destroyed the kingdom where that huge Buddha was. Um, and but this was a, a kind of an ordinary Buddha. It was it was covered with pla. It was all you know made of plaster and. It kind of painted in some cheap colored glass, you know, uh, but it was huge. And so it was actually just kind of left in the ruins for about a hundred years. Um, everything else was in ruins, and it just was kind of stayed there. And then in the 18th century, um, a lineage of Buddhist kings came into power, and they made Bangkok the capital, and they started bringing in Buddhas from the countryside. And so this Buddha made its way to, to Bangkok. Um, but the temple it was put in fell into disrepair, and so they had put it with another temple. But that temple was too small for it, so it sat outside with a, like a, a tin roof over it. And then in uh, 1954, they built a temple that was big enough to house it in, in Bangkok. And so um, 1955 comes around, and the, and the day comes when they're going to move this huge Buddha statue into the renovated temple and they're lifting it up off the, the platform and just as they get it up the ropes break and the Buddha crashes to the floor and it cracks and so the monks were really upset but then you know they, and they were looking at it and then one of the monks noticed that there was seemed to be gold coming out of the cracks and so they, you know, come along, and, the, and they looked, and sure enough, uh, it seemed to be gold inside. So they stopped what they were doing. They got a, you know, an evaluation to come in and, and check it all out, and they realized that it looked like it was a gold Buddha. And so they very carefully, painstakingly, took off all the plaster and the, the bits of colored glass and everything. And lo and behold, this was the biggest solid gold statue of any kind in the entire world. And it had been covered up. The, the monks, you know, b before that Burmese invasion, they had, somehow they'd gotten wind of it, that it might be coming. And they, to protect it, they had covered it with this cheap plaster and, and bits of glass. So this is a true story, but I'm telling you... Um, the story also has an analogy for each one of us. That there's this really this gold Buddha inside, and we may be lugging around a lot of mud or plaster on the outside, but um, it's in there. So our practice means that, that, that we, you know, we have to see the mud that we carry around, and it's hiding our Buddha nature. But we do have the promise of the Buddha, which is the third noble truth, which is that there is an end to dukkha, an end to suffering, and that comes when we let go, we let go of clinging. So what this promise of the Buddha is, is there is awakening, that awakening is possible, and it's our birthright. 
So it's a beautiful thing to open one's heart to the possibility of awakening. And for some of us, it may require a leap of faith, but um, in, in living a life of refuge is something that we can, that we can cultivate. So that's about, that's about taking refuge in the Buddha. Then we take refuge in the Dharma. Um, that's uh, formally taking refuge in the teachings of the Buddha that have been handed down all these centuries. But one of the things that the Buddha emphasized was the teaching of the present moment, the teaching of things just the way they are. So this, too, is the Dharma. And for me, this has been the most challenging kind of refuge to get, to get my head around. Um, how is it that we can find in the present moment, regardless of what the present moment is showing us, how do we find safety in that? It's very counterintuitive because we know that whatever we have is going to be impermanent and, and we're going to lose it. And so it's a kind of entering into a kind of groundlessness to be able to find safety in things that we know uh, are not going to last. Or even to find safety in things that are difficult. You may have heard the equation that pain uh, plus resistance equals suffering. So take away the resistance and then pain is just pain. You know, it's just, it's just an experience. But as soon as we uh, try to get away from it, as soon as we, we push it away, as soon as we refuse it, then we enter into the valley of suffering. So um, coming back to those painful worldly winds, you know, whenever we get one of the ones that we don't like, whether it's uh, loss or pain or blame or whatever, our natural tendency is to wish they were different. And so if we're taking refuge in the Dharma, we're taking refuge in the fact that this is what things are right now in this moment. We give up wishing that things were different. So this takes us back to the first noble truth, that suffering does exist, that our experience is inherently unsatisfactory. And most of the time, we're like railing against this first noble truth. You know, a, a loved one dies, and we think, no, it shouldn't be this way. Uh, and, there, and there are terrible things that happen. And so our, our first, our instinct is to, is to just, you know, refuse it. But if we can practice with the first noble truth and start to integrate it into our perception, then when, when pain comes along, when loss or grief or sorrow comes along, it's not such a big shock. It's still something that we have to go through. It's not like we don't feel the grief, but we don't have to um, add to it the second arrow that this shouldn't be happening. The fact is it is happening. So the safety that we find in taking refuge in the dharma of the present moment is the safety of giving up our struggle against the way things are. We don't struggle with it anymore.
We live it fully, but we stop pushing it away. So we're, we become free from the struggle against loss and pain. And it's like those equanimity phrases that I was telling you before. Things are as they have come to be. And may I see the world with quiet eyes. So then uh, we take refuge in the Sangha. Formally, when we do this, we're taking refuge and we're paying homage to all those monks and nuns and teachers who have uh, carried on this tradition and passed the teaching down to us. If it weren't for them, we wouldn't even be here today. So we have a huge debt uh, to them. But um, equally important, when, when I take refuge in the Sangha, I like to think that I'm taking refuge in my interconnectedness with all beings everywhere. So I don't know if you know, but every atom in our body has most likely passed through uh, at least a couple of stars and millions and millions of other living beings before becoming part of us. So even on a very basic physical level, this interconnectedness is, is reality. This is, this is the way things really are. Uh, the contemporary Zen poet um, Peter Levitt writes, Within each petal, the sound of rain. So when I take refuge in the Sangha this way, I remind myself that my skin is not what separates me from other beings. It's what connects me. You may have heard Thich Nhat Hanh, who writes, If you are a poet you'll see that there is a cloud in this sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no rain. Without rain, trees cannot grow. And without trees, we cannot make paper. And then he goes on to talk about the logger who cut the trees and then the logger's mother. And so, you know, even in this piece of paper, we have, we have clouds and, and trees. And it's true. So ecology is often called the subversive science since it um, subverts our egocentric insistence on being something separate. And in the very same way, uh, the Buddha's teaching of not-self is no less subversive. It's, it's really very radical. But it, it's, it's just as true as, as the ecology teaching. So coming back to living a life of refuge, we dwell in our potential for awakening. We embrace the teaching, the truth of things just the way they are. We celebrate our profound connectedness with all beings everywhere. And when we do this, we connect with our innate goodness which is born of our intention to awaken that golden Buddha inside each of us. To awaken, to see the truth of things as they are, and to let go of those painful constraints of the small self. So uh, knowing where our true refuge is 
is a really beautiful foundation for deepening our mindfulness meditation. So in closing, I want to leave you with a message about the importance of self-compassion. So in, in Buddhism, we say that um, a bird needs two wings to fly, and as Buddhists, we're flying with wisdom, and we're flying with compassion. And we won't fly anywhere unless we're flying with both of them at the same time. So the wisdom that we need is that every moment we're faced with choices, and it's, it's wise if we know which choices are going to take us down the road towards greater freedom, and which choices are going to take us down the road to greater suffering. And the other really crucial wisdom that we need is to remember that the road to freedom is the road of letting go. So with that, we've got, we've got, the, we've got the understanding that we need to, to move forward on the path. But what makes it really possible is the compassion side. And it's wonderful to practice compassion for others, but it's absolutely crucial, it's absolutely essential that we practice compassion for ourselves. If we don't do this, we're not going to fly, and, and we're not going to even be very compassionate with other people. So this, this uh, self-love that I'm um, talking about, it's not some, just some you know, feel-good thing. It's, it's really um, a fundamental condition uh, that supports our practice. I think um, it's kind of ironic, but self-love is one of the most powerful things we can do to let go of that clinging to me, myself, and mine. So last week, Gil suggested that um, we, if we wanted to do uh, focus our practice for the week, that we focus on the mindfulness of the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. So if you're so inclined, I would suggest a practice to you for the week of focusing on your heart and looking into uh, how you might cultivate loving yourself. Loving yourself wisely, but loving yourself unabashedly. And let me just read to you um, a poem by Kim McMillan called, well, it's, it's some excerpts from a, a little book by her, When I Loved Myself Enough. When I loved myself enough, I came to know my own goodness. When I loved myself enough, the parts of me long ignored the orphans of my soul, quit vying for attention. That was the beginning of inner peace. Then I began to see clearly. When I loved myself enough, my heart became so tender, it could welcome joy and sorrow equally. When I loved myself enough, I started meditating every day. This is a profound act of self-love. When I loved myself enough, I no longer needed things or people to make me feel safe. 
when I loved myself enough, I quit exhausting myself by trying so hard. When I loved myself enough, I began to accept the unacceptable. When I loved myself enough, I gave up perfectionism, that killer of joy. When I loved myself enough, I began to see my purpose and gently wean myself from distractions. When I loved myself enough, I realized that I am never alone. When I loved myself enough, I could be at ease with the comings and goings of judgment and despair. When I loved myself enough, I forgave myself for all the times I thought I wasn't good enough. When I loved myself enough, things got real quiet inside. When I loved myself enough, I began to taste freedom. So, thank you very much.